Over the past 10 or 15 years, something really remarkable has happened. The face of business has transformed. And I'm not talking about the way business is done, though technology has had a significant impact there. I'm talking about the way most people interact with companies every single day. Now, two decades ago, some businesses had some kind of website, but today, many, if not all, customers interact with a business primarily through its website. Today, we buy clothes, household supplies, and even groceries online. Just recently, Amazon began to offer grocery delivery within two hours, as a matter of fact. With so much of a business's success depending on its website, you can bet the good guys aren't the only ones who've noticed. Website security is the topic for today's episode of Cyber24. Welcome into another episode of the Cyber24 Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Carpenter, joined today by Dan Schuyler from Valcom. Dan, thanks for being here. Marty, thanks for having me. Website security. We're talking about how they can be protected or how they're vulnerable to cyber attacks. Because I suddenly do all of my business and interact with so many things that I used to interact with in person, I now do that online through a website. Do I care enough about website security or do do people assume that they're safer than they really are. Websites have evolved considerably since the early days. Websites initially were just a way of getting information out there. There wasn't any interaction between the website and the person visiting the site. And now websites are very complex. You can purchase things, as you mentioned. Uh, You can provide data. You can watch video. There's a wealth of interactivity that websites provide now. And with that complexity comes additional vulnerabilities that attackers try to take advantage of. Some of those are as simple as just trying to see if they can create an error on the web page by entering specific characters into an input field and seeing if they can get an error message and exploiting the data in that error message. Others are more complex, trying to get access to your database um, doing what's called a SQL injection. So there's a variety of, of methods that hackers can use to try to take advantage of vulnerabilities. Uh, in your website, not to mention trying to disable the availability of your website with through a uh, distributed denial of service attack, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a there's a multitude of different vulnerabilities that all companies should be aware of. You make the point that originally a website was essentially treated as here's where we post information about our company. And that evolved quickly into sort of an e-commerce where suddenly consumers are giving credit card information. Uh, to a company that's being collected through the website that, like you mentioned, is being connected to a database somewhere. And suddenly that principle we talk about so often on this podcast of you're only as strong as your weakest link, that maybe a website was the first soft underbelly in the armor. Um, Was that sort of initially a way that hackers that was an easy way for them to try to get into those systems. Whereas now we we hear a lot about email scams and phishing scams and trying to kind of get around things. Does that mean we've gotten better at protecting websites, sort of generally speaking and painting with a broad brush? In in general, yes. I think it all depends on the sophistication of your website, the, the security team that you have dedicated to the website, the security tools that you're using. Uh, to protect your website. One of the recommendations or one of the additional recommendations in the article was using a web application firewall. 
Um, I would actually emphasize the utilization of a web application firewall. Um, if you are a public-facing website conducting e-commerce that's connected to a back-end database that stores credit card information. Or which co- is almost anyone. Which really. is I mean, if anyone. you have a website for anything other than just here's my blog and here's what's going on in my life, almost everyone will fit the description you're, you're laying out there. Absolutely. Yeah. If you are gathering and storing uh, credit card information, you should have a web application firewall. Mm-hmm. And they've gotten web application firewalls or WAFs have gotten more sophisticated in the last five years, uh, and they can protect your website against many of the vulnerabilities that I mentioned. So cross-site scripting, SQL injection, input validation, uh, DDoS attacks, uh, and others. You can use a web web application firewall and configure it in such a way that it'll protect your site from those vulnerabilities. Now, when I say vulnerabilities, these are the obvious vulnerabilities, but then there are the unknown vulnerabilities that you may not be aware of. And and those usually happen when you do a code update to your website. So you have HTML code on the site. You might be using some scripting language like JavaScript or PHP script on your website. And then, of course, if you're connecting to a back-end database, you're using SQL. So you're going to be making updates to those all the time. You're going to make HTML updates, scripting code updates. You're going to be making updates to your back-end database on a frequent basis. And so you may not catch those vulnerabilities, and that's where a web application firewall can sort of fill that fill that gap and protect you from those unknown vulnerabilities that you may not be aware of because of those updates that you just uh, that you just implemented. Most of the attacks that you would see on a website will have some kind of financial driver behind it that the hackers, not so much just what I would think of in sort of old school terms, they're not just there to spray graffiti on the side of the wall and disrupt your website and, and you know, make it so you you can't access it or people get weird messages if they they do. There's a financial driver behind most of this. They're trying to steal personally identifiable information. They're trying to steal credit card information. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sure, you have, you have like you mentioned, the hackers, the uh, mischievous hackers that just want to get on the site to see if they can get in on get into your site and and take your site down or deface it. But then you have the hackers who are have a monetary uh have a monetary initiative and want to get that personal information, whether it's a credit card number, social security number, what have you, to to exploit that and and uh, and to sell that data online. Hmm. Which do you think we see more commonly now? A, a denial of service type attack, or those that are that are going after credit card information, personally identifiable information? Wh- which is more common today? Well, the denial of service attacks are more public facing. Um, a popular website gets hit with a DDoS attack, the site goes down, it becomes major news. But if a a site is getting hacked uh, and somebody has access to the database and can can compromise that that, uh, personal information, the credit card numbers that we mentioned, et cetera, et cetera, that takes more time uh, to make the news, if you will. Most hackers are trying to get a monetary edge by trying to get that personal information. Yes, there are uh, there is a subset that just want to deface or take down the site, but I think a majority of the hacking community that that uh, is looking for monetary returns is trying to get mm. that personal personal information. Denial of service, sort of, if you're trying to catch headlines, you'd have to get a website that a lot of people know and use, right? Like, I suppose you do that if you're a hacker and you think, oh, I could take down Amazon or I could take down Google or so, some website that we all use. They're not going after there's no real benefit to them other than just being mischievous to go and have a, a DDoS attack on a 
smaller, lesser known website because it's not going to grab the headlines. Right. Um, everywhere else they're trying for the financial thing. We kind of talked about it almost as two different buckets that there's like a denial of service type attack and then there is the for-profit attack. Is there a way that a that a DDoS attack can be profitable to a hacker or is it is it right to think of them in two separate buckets? So it all depends on what type of solutions you have to mitigate a DDoS attack. Most DDoS attacks are used just to take the site down, if you will. But a DDoS attack can help a hacker go to the next level and get access to the back end of your, of your website, your database, your code, et cetera, et cetera. A DDoS attack can th- throw up error messages that can give the hacker some information about the name of your database, the type of code you're working with, the code base, et cetera, et cetera, that they can then use to gain access to your site. But most DDoS attacks are used just to take Mm. down the site. If you have some control of the website, can you then go weaponize that and use that, not just to attack that company, but then to use that company essentially and use them to go cause mischief elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. Depending on how successful the hacker is, they can move both horizontally and vertically through your site, depending on uh, the type of vulnerabilities that they've exploited. When we come back, we'll discuss how you can protect your website and all that data that sits on it. Stay with us. Do you ever wonder what you would do with $12 billion? Well, that's the amount of money that business email compromising has cost businesses in just the last five years. Barracuda Sentinel detects threats that traditional email security systems can't. It integrates directly with Microsoft Office 365 APIs to detect attacks coming from both internal and external sources. It uses artificial intelligence to detect signs of malicious intent and deception within every email with virtually no IT administration required. Check out vlcmtech.com slash barracuda-sentinel to find out how you can save your company from a hacker's $12 billion business. That's vlcmtech.com slash barracuda-sentinel, B-A-R-R-A-C-U-D-A hyphen S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L for more information. Check it out today. This season of Cyber 24 is presented by our friends at Valcom. Valcom is a Utah-based IT solutions and service provider with the drive for getting IT right. From ironclad security to computing and beyond, Valcom's 35 plus years means they have experience and expertise to help your business from desktop to the data center. At Valcom, you get much more than just a dedicated IT retailer. They actually become an extension of your IT team. Whether you're a startup or an enterprise, Valcom has the technical sales and engineering expertise to make your business more effective and productive. Check them out, vlcmtech.com, to learn more about Valcom's end-to-end solutions, the technology vendors they partner with, and so much more. That's vlcmtech.com. Cyber24 is supported by the Utah Department of Public Safety, as well as the Utah Department of Technology Services and the Utah Attorney General's Office. In addition, the University of Utah's Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute is where we record this podcast each week. At the Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute, they're dedicated to helping Utah make informed decisions. We're also proud to have the support of Secuvant, a Utah-based company providing business-enabled cyber risk and management. Every week on this program, these great partners will provide expertise and insight to help business and civic leaders better understand the challenge of cybersecurity and how to keep your organization safe. We appreciate your support. 
All right, Dan, we've established that there are bad guys who are trying to break into websites and that websites have vulnerabilities. So if I'm a business leader or a policymaker with some level of responsibility over my organization's website, what can I do to make sure that I have the right cybersecurity protection in place? What's my best defense? And is there an easy answer to that? There's no real easy answer, but a lot of the recommendations apply to all the, all the security controls that you want to do with regards to your business anyway. So the first one that I always recommend is, is multi-factor authentication for uh, access to your website accounts, whether that's the uh, hosting account, whether that is the database, um, whether that is the, the scripting language that you're using. Uh, for example, a lot of websites use WordPress. WordPress is the back-end uh, content engine for a significant number of websites out there, mm -hmm. and there is a username and login for that. So you want to make sure that you have a strong username and password and that you're using multi-factor authentication for that. You also want to make sure... Essentially saying that if someone tries to log in who's not me, that when they go to get that second part of the authentication, that it hits my phone or my email and isn't just that they can crack one code and get in to the backside. Correct. That secure yeah. token is sent to your phone, your device, and not to the hacker's device, right. which exponentially increases the security of that uh, account. One of the things that I mentioned earlier in the podcast was a, a web application firewall. Again, I, I really I, I want to emphasize the significance of that because, again, most of these websites are very significant. Uh, very complex. You're doing a lot of updates frequently to the front end code, the back end code, the database, and you don't have time to check all the for all the vulnerabilities. And that's where a web application firewall can save your bacon, if you will, mm -hmm. and protect you against a lot of those a lot of those vulnerabilities. Um, so those were those are some of the recommendations that uh, that uh, I would recommend. Yeah, I know one of the things that pops up post breach. Uh, as you're sort of sorting out all the regulatory um, business of, hey, we've had a problem and, and going to explain to regulators, you know, that you were doing your due diligence uh, is sort of this principle of who had access to what and when. And and one thing that I think might be a, a good idea here is this this idea, and maybe you can explain a little more about it and why it's important, this principle of least privilege. And wh what is that and why should companies be thinking about it? That's a a really good security control. And what you're what you're trying to accomplish there is is ensuring that only the individuals that are supposed to have access to certain components of your website have that access. So you want, only want to give administrator privileges to administrators. You only want to give database access to the database admins. You only want to give website development access to the website developers. You don't want to give the website developer access to the database mm -hmm. unless they absolutely need it. You don't want to give access to the website to the database administrator because they don't need it. So that's the principle of least privilege. You want to make sure that only those individuals that have a need to know or a need to access have that access. Yeah. Sort of the uh, a principle that not all employees are created equal in the sense that they don't all need access to the same information. Human resources has access to some data that um, you know uh, sales does not, for example, and and vice versa. And so you want to make sure that everyone sort of has access to what they have need to have access to, and what they don't. Another one that I thought was interesting is uh, how many companies end up with unnecessary accounts or don't do a good enough job of sort of cleaning up behind themselves. 
how how important of a step is that to just sort of disable unnecessary accounts or you know clean up when an employee moves on to another uh, another opportunity, another job somewhere else outside of your organization, and you need to close off the access that they had. And and do you think businesses are as good at this as they should be? Probably not as good as it yeah. as they should be. Do you and see it a lot that businesses just you, you kind of take a gander at what they've got and go there? however many people here who don't even work here anymore? It's it's an administrative task that's not very exciting and gets overlooked all the time, uh, primarily because most organizations are doing it manually. There are some uh, technology solutions out there that will help you automate that process to ensure that uh, those accounts that no longer need to be active um, are disabled or deleted. But yes, and that that security control or that process applies not only to your website, but also to uh, your general day-to-day um, activities within, within your organization. So I always recommend that you do an audit of administrator accounts on a monthly basis and do an audit of your other accounts as frequently as possible because if somebody leaves or gets terminated, you want to make sure that their account is disabled um, as soon as possible because if that account is still enabled, then that, that person, that employee could gain access to a specific part of your database or your website and they they now have control and they can do malicious activity. Yeah, goes without saying probably or at least should, but but bears repeating, I guess, at the same time, um, cyber hygiene, right? We're talking about patching systems, running backups, um, those types of things. It may seem fundamental to someone in your line of work, but to a business leader to think, is that really getting done? And depending on how small of an organization you're talking about, if you're in a relatively, say, a five, 10-person firm, the CEO, president, owner, may just have that as one more thing that he or she needs on on their plate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so patching systems just it makes a world of difference. Well, patching systems, uh, doing system audits, um, checking your log files, making sure you have secure passwords, making sure you have multi-factor authentication in place. All of these things are important um, for your website. And one uh, area that that uh, of concern that I have is we have a lot of companies that are moving their infrastructure, their website into the cloud. And they move their, they move their website, they move their IT infrastructure into the cloud, and then they, they, f- they have a, this philosophy or this thought process that they can wash their hands of the security because this, they're, they're depending on the provider for the security. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, when you move your, your infrastructure into the cloud, you do have a layer of security that is um, inherent with that cloud uh, system. But your due diligence, your security due diligence um, shouldn't change. You should be doing the same due diligence with regards to the security of your cloud infrastructure as you would be if that infrastructure was still on-premise and not in the cloud. In fact, I would argue um, that you should take it up a notch because the cloud infrastructure is changing all the time and you don't have necessarily transparency into the security infrastructure that the cloud provider is providing. So you need to make sure that the security controls that you have in place for your cloud infrastructure are robust enough to ensure that um, all or most of your vulnerabilities are mitigated. Yeah, I think it's interesting that I, I think for most business leaders or just people in general that you sort of think of this is our website. 
right? right? And it's and, and it, you, you almost think of it as this siloed thing. This is our website, and yes, we need to secure our website. But you mentioned earlier WordPress, and I think of other websites that I've had access to in, in previous jobs and so on. That yeah, WordPress is sort of the the platform that you're using to to sew it all together. But there are any number of plugins. Uh, businesses are going to have relationships with other companies that either uh, actually process their financial transactions or store their data. Or they're, they're just no one really sits in a silo anymore. So what what advice would you have for a business leader uh, or someone who's who may be responsible for this type of stuff uh, when it comes to making sure that not only is your own house set up right, but that your work, everyone you're working with and everyone has some kind of touch on your website is, is also doing that. Well, with regards to WordPress, WordPress does a, a great job of updating um, their solution, their backend solution when there are updates, security updates. But it's incumbent upon you to actually install those updates on, t- on your site. You're given notice by WordPress, and then you need to go in and install those updates. Security checklist is a valuable tool to have. So making sure that your backend content platform, WordPress, is updated. Making sure any plugins that you have, and most likely if you're using WordPress, you're using one or several do- dozen plugins, making sure those are updated because those are developed by third-party developers as well. And you may not get notification directly that those plugins have been updated. You have to go into your WordPress tenant, if you will, and check to see if there's updates there. Uh, making sure that your code is updated, making sure that you're using some type of code application security. So when you, whether you're writing HTML, whether you're writing PHP, whether whether you're writing ASP.NET script, that you have some sort of application security solution in place to look at that code to make sure that there's no vulnerabilities. Same thing for your, your database, you know, making sure that any updates that you're doing to your database, that you're checking for those vulnerabilities to ensure that there aren't any vulnerabilities that can be exploited by hackers. So that security checklist, and then again, I know I'm, I'm bringing this up a lot, but I, I, I can't emphasize the importance of considering the use of a web application firewall uh, as a last line or as a first line of defense to make sure that those vulnerabilities that you may not be aware of um, are are mitigated. If you're a business leader, you don't necessarily have to understand 80% of the jargon that's been thrown out in this discussion or any that we'll put on our website as part of this podcast, but it's a matter of sort of asking the right questions. And that can just be saying, what are we doing to protect our website? Do we have a firewall in place? Um, what are we doing to protect our data? Any other final thoughts that if you're if you're talking to that business leader or someone who's in charge of these types of things within their organization, words of advice you'd pass along to them? Make sure that you are doing your due diligence with, with regards to your website security. Consider all of the recommendations that um, we've discussed today. Make sure you have that checklist. Uh, having a checklist is a great guide or tool to ensure that you're checking all the boxes to make sure that you're looking for those vulnerabilities, those potential vulnerabilities that might be inherent in your website, and looking at specific solutions uh, and tools to help secure your website. And we've talked about those on the show. For most of your customers, for most of your clients, for most of the general public, the way they interface with your organization is through your website. This is some of the most important, if not the most important real estate you have in your entire organization. Do what you need to do to make sure that it's defended and stay safe. Absolutely. All right, that's it for this episode. Final thanks to our presenting partners at Valcom for all of their support. I'd also like to thank our supporting partners who contribute to this program throughout the season. 
the Utah Department of Public Safety, the University of Utah's Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute, our friends at Secuvant, as well as the Utah Department of Technology Services and the Utah Attorney General's Office. Until next episode, I'm Marty Carpenter.